Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again. Glad to be along for another episode with my family, the beloved Center for Lit crew. My wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. His wife, Emily. Hello. And my daughter, Megan. Hey, guys. Hey. Welcome, everyone. Pretty excited about today's topic. Uh, I didn't suggest it, nor did Missy suggest it, which is odd because it's a topic that both Missy and I like to go on about. Emily actually suggested it this time. So, Emily, um, your check is in the mail. (laughs) I'll be expecting it. (laughs) (laughs) I might not have should have said that on the air. (laughs) Um, Today's topic comes from a question that we get every once in a while with respect to great literature and books and teaching and reading. And the question goes like this, to whom does a story actually belong? In particular, after it leaves the hands of the author, does it cease to be his in any significant way? And this is a question that comes to us, as I said, pretty often, primarily as it pertains to the subject of meaning. What does a story actually mean? And who is in charge of deciding it. In particular, readers want to know what part they have in uh, to play, I should say, in defining or creating a story's meaning. Can they disagree with an author about what a story means? And if they do, whose word is final? So really, the question that I want to throw out to you guys is, to whom does a story belong? The author or the reader or some combination of those two And if the answer to that question changes, at what point does it change? It's a little more nuanced than that, even though, right? Because there are arguments that have been made that an author can subconsciously or unintentionally put something into a story that the story means, but that he didn't necessarily consciously set out to mean. Uh, So another version of that question is, where is the meaning of a story located and who can find it, right? Yeah. Uh, Is it like in the story or is it the author? Is it in the story or is it in the author or is it in the reader or is it in some combination of those things? Right. Okay. So, so can I just say that this has become a big issue since the deconstructionist movement has gained steam in the universities and trickled down into, um, well, into the, the lower level academies, the college, the college level. Yeah. It's part and parcel with the deconstructionist movement in English literature and that's something that we, um, we casual readers don't often uh, think about in technical terms, but the question in its kind of casual way um, seems to apply to us, when, especially when we're teaching, right? And especially when we're, we're sitting down in front of a work of literature and saying to our students, let's think about this particular theme. Here's what the story actually means. Or when we fall into that, that trap of asking our students, what does this story mean to you? Yeah. Who's we, the arbiter of meaning? That's what is the arbiter of meaning? Meaning in literature? Yeah, that's what you're asking. Kind of, it kind of is, and and I I do think it's relevant, even though we're not necessarily in a 
in a um, a graduate level English department right now. Well, so, I think so, but, especially because we're not. Because if we were in a graduate level English class, all of our feelers would be up, right? And we'd be paying particular attention to the philosophies that guided our interpretation, our, our hermeneutic, right. if we can call it that, right? But when we're just reading casually and talking casually about literature, sometimes that flies below the radar. I think so too. And a lot of things get conflated. Let me pull the Center for Lit crew on this question uh, about the location of meaning or the arbiter of meaning. Ian, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask this question of you first. How do you respond to this question off the top of your reading head? Uh, would you restate the question in sort of a, a nice little bow? Sure. Where does the where's the locus of meaning, as Mom just said, in a story? Where does it where does it come from? Where does it exist? Who decides what it is? When you go to read a story and the question, what does it mean, comes back to you, who is it that should be answering? Oh man, that is such an awesome question. Because it's so all-encompassing, there are a million different ways to answer it. Um, the, fir- the first way that jumps into my mind to answer it is not probably the answer I would settle on, but I start seeing this um, this little row of caricatures popping through my head. Uh, the hipster, right, who's got sort of long stringy hair and maybe is wearing round glasses and a scarf and... He is asking himself, what does this book mean to me? And he has a personal relationship with Ernest Hemingway in the way one might talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Then we've got (laughs) the professor who may in fact also be wearing a scarf and round glasses, but he at least has had a shower recently. And he is asking himself, what cultural and philosophical implications does this story intend to symbolize and or parody? And he's reading the story through the lens of culture and through the lens of scholarship almost exclusively. Then we've got the book club leader or the casual estate. I don't know about his... um, Hygiene habits or the way he looks. Right, whether he bathes, that's probably not right. relevant. But his intellectual, but his intellectual presence is very much one of sort of happy cluelessness, and he sort of knows that metaphor is a word to bandy about, <laughs> and so he sort of kind of runs along through the story looking for metaphor. And I think there's a little there's a little shred of truth in all of these things because there is more to a work of literature than what meets the eye. It's a work of language, and language is pregnant with meaning, right? That's why we use these words. All these words mean something beyond just the phonetics of the way that they sound. And so because of that, we are we participate. We have to participate in deciding what the story means. That question presents itself to all of us. But I don't think it's safe to limit ourselves to one way of answering it, is it? Well, that was not much of an answer, was it, Ian? No, that was a, a grand evasion, and I do mean grand. <laughs> I mean, to not limit ourselves to an answer, uh, that's kind of cop-out, don't you think? You, the question that you asked me was maybe a little bit too direct, is what I would say, if we're getting feisty here. Okay. Who decides what the oh, story is? Oh, and we means? are. <laughs> okay. We're always going to be feisty, aren't we, Mom? Yeah, absolutely. So, Okay, so I like that, Ian. That's a good starting place. Emily, you, you jump in. How would you react to Ian's contribution? Um, I, I can see where he's headed, uh, and I know that the Pat Center for Lit answer is going to, we're going to tend towards authorial intent, right? That is who we are. We believe that an author intends something when he sits down to write a story. And so I, I, obviously we want to cover that ground first, but I do think there is something to what Ian is saying, that it's a trickier question maybe than meets the eye. And Tricky for we who? Talk about that. We, we've talked a million times in this podcast about how authorial intention has to be the anchor on which meaning is hanging because if we can't trust if we can't um, trust language to mean what the person using it wanted to say, 
then we can't communicate. Right. And we're going to see a relativism. And we don't want to talk about it that way necessarily, but there is a necessary element of participation by the reader in ferreting out meaning. You can be having a conversation with someone and all of your words mean something and you're using a vocabulary that everyone's agreed upon, the definitions to the words that you're using. And even so, at the end of a conversation, oftentimes you find you've miscommunicated. Yes. That the person didn't actually understand your meaning inherent in all of the words whose definitions you've already agreed upon. So I, I believe actually that it's the same thing when you're reading a book, that you can misunderstand the author mm-hmm. in your conversation with him, particularly because necessarily he isn't there to defend himself, to explain Mm. another way, right? So you have to be listening really closely in order to understand him the first time. And I think that's why we have so much fun the way that we do talking about books, because some people are better at listening than others and we can argue about it. Well, well and that's, I think, yeah, that's well said. And I think that that's kind of the direction I was tending toward. I don't mean to dismiss the pie answer at all, because I think what I actually mean is kind of more what Megan was saying, that there are things, if we see things that an author didn't intend, there are a couple things that could have happened. A, it could be a bad communicator as the author that he hasn't effectively communicated to us, or we could be uh, badly communicating or badly listening as the reader. And then there's another one that I think is that- I mean, by badly listening, let me me just ask you a question before you go on. The second thing, um, we could be miscommunicating as the reader. You mean- we're reading things into the text We're that he didn't intend. Badly. Right, bad listening. Right, okay, bad listening, go on. Good. And then what's the third one? Well, then the third one would be um, something that I, I have heard of happening where an author has an image that he incorporates into the story and he didn't intend for it to necessarily uphold his theme in a particular way, but then a reader comes along and sees that metaphor and um, and sees that it's apt in a way that the author didn't see that it was apt. And in that case, I think I would say it's an instance of the reader bringing something to bear that isn't part of the original work of art, that they have an interpretation of their own that could maybe be their own like artistic thought. Yes. Uh, yes. But isn't necessarily occasioned part of the intention by, of right. the occasioned, text. occasioned by the text, but not necessarily something the author wrote about to begin with. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, I, I can see that sometimes there are these things that aren't intended that are actually present. And I think that that happens because the human psyche, human thought works on the basis of association. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So a lot of times our mind works more quickly than we are even aware of. And hmm. an author who's in the zone creating, right? Using metaphors and similes and doing his thing to weave a little world or to create a poem or whatever, to um, communicate some idea to his reader. Oftentimes, just through the process of association, things creep in that maybe he wasn't um, consciously intending, but that were working in the vein with his Mm -hmm. general thrust, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. Um, Yeah, I think that, I think that it's, it's clear that that happens sometimes. And we have the the credible testimony of many authors that that has in fact happened to them in right. their particular process and their writing process. And they look up later and go, Oh wow. Yeah. I don't know that that was conscious on my part, but I see that but it's, it's present, in the vein of what I was after. And it's Which in the is, vein of what I was after. Right. right. Yeah. So, Which is why I, and to, to go back and maybe um, retroactively defend myself just a little bit. Um, I understand that my comment went a lot longer than the average comment and that it was time for it to be done. And in fact, I hadn't said anything. <laughs> but I was going to say something. <laughs> I really was. 
And what I was going to say is the first question, the question that, that we're asking in the podcast is, is who's the arbiter of meeting? And I think the whole Center for Lit staff and anyone who's listened to our podcast before would all chime out in unison, the author, <laughs> right? Everybody knows that. But yes. then um, it's not an easy thing, as Megan and Emily have been saying, to just hand yourself a list of rules that will help you to figure out exactly what the author was saying. Because once we get into the weeds of looking at metaphor and symbolism and implications of all the things that the author has included in a work of art, things get difficult really fast. And those caricatures I was mentioning are, I think, dangerous because they present a credible way to find a pat answer for what the author was trying to say that all by itself isn't sufficient to make room for the kind of vagueness, beautiful vagueness that Emily was talking about. Just yeah, now. I think that's a good point. Well, it, I think it all boils down to this idea of, is there such a thing as a meaning inherent in a work of literature? Yeah. And that I think is a really, a slightly different question that it's, it's it, worth taking up because the, the question of whether meaning actually exists apart from the reader, for example, is we ought to talk about that. Well, I think it's mm. um, it's a fundamental question to the entire conversation here. Right. And the reason that this is even an issue in most circles um, is because of the time in which we live and the postmodernism that afflicts us, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you gave mention to the deconstructionists a little while ago, but um, to speak more specifically, there was a French author, a French philosopher, Jacques Derrida, who wrote this piece called Grammatology in about 1967. And he assumes that, well, in that text, that language, its symbolic form, um, doesn't really work. That, that is to say that words don't have any meaning apart from the meaning that we agree upon with one another As in, a particular, in a particular time and culture. Right. And therefore, mm -hmm. we can't really communicate from culture to culture or from time to time because we can't necessarily agree on what the words themselves mean. That is to say, he takes language itself and de-objectifies it, that the words themselves are not rooted in any kind of a reality that stands outside a of transcendent man, right? reality. In, in a transcendent way, right? So language itself is not any kind of an anchor for the men who use it. Therefore, really, language begins to break down and in truth, he would admit as much. Language begins mm -hmm. to break down, according to the deconstructionist, until men can't really communicate very well at all. And Which that language so itself becomes totally, um, let's see, subjective yes. in its nature. That each man ascribes to individual words um, whatever his particular meaning is. So now think about that in terms of the work of the reader. If this is true, not only can you and I not communicate, and in particular, not, can, uh, not only can you and I in this family not communicate very well, but think about our listeners in the podcast. Right. You guys shouldn't be able to even listen in or eavesdrop on this conversation that we're having because who knows where you're from? You don't know us. We haven't agreed upon the meaning of these words, and yet you do, and you do seem to understand what it is that we're talking about here, which kind of, I think, explodes this um, pretty thoroughly, this, this concept. Yeah, it, it seems like a contradiction in terms at its very, in its very essence. He kind of breaks his own rules, right? <laughs> the deconstructionist right, has book. to break his own rules in order to communicate his arcane philosophy. Emily, go ahead and jump in here. Well, there's another school of thought that has reacted to that that I just want to throw out there for the discussion, which is that 
they they identify that yes it's true that it is difficult to communicate but instead of that it contains nothing or that it's totally subjective instead the thought says that words contain worlds and that that there's multiple meaning behind words and so our our communication uh difficulties don't come from a lack but from an abundance wow and it's uh differentiating between the different mean which one was the intended meeting that our difficulty comes from absolutely and that is the work of the reader and i think it would be wrong to say that there is only one way to read a work but it's equally wrong to say that all ways that one would read a work are equal ah Yes. Now we're getting to the heart of things. I think think that's very true. Because obviously the mind that produced the work in some way sustains it. Those words actually had meaning to the author and he was writing to communicate some sort of an idea. And if he's no longer with us, then all we have is what he left us in the form of the writing itself. And if he did a really good job, then he may have communicated with us. So, so the implication... But if he didn't do such a good job, if he was intentionally ambiguous, then that ambiguity remains. Or maybe he was even unintentionally ambiguous. Maybe he chose a word. Words are slippery things. You get, you get one that's close instead of exactly what you mean. And you open the door on, like you said, a new world of meaning. And it's possible that an author would do such a thing without intending to do so and then as a result, leave himself open to all kinds of misunderstandings. So the student of literature comes along and in reading this piece goes off on a tangent that the original author didn't intend. And he basically interprets the work this particular way. And to the extent that he ties his comments to the work, he is presenting a cohesive reading of the material. It may not be the right meaning. And how can we know? How can we know? All we can do is hew to the spirit and the tone and the context of the work itself. We can look at other works by the same author, at the canon of work by the, by the author. Um, we can be sure to read contextually and consider language in the time period in which he was writing it and the way that words tend to change over time. Could I... Can I jump in right there and add on, just piggyback on that idea for a second? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like we're, on the one hand, we're painting this very true and, and really spectacularly beautiful idea that language has this abundance to it, right? And that an author, while they're working, are themselves interpreting what is an overabundance of information and meaning and trying to choose exactly the right words to say. Um, and it occurs to me, what we're really doing is presenting a problem to our to our listeners and haven't yet given them a solution necessarily and I, it strikes me that maybe a solution is is to work from the most intentional things we see the author doing mm-hmm. towards the more mm-hmm. specific esoteric ones. Absolutely. So if we start, by the way, if we start if we start from broad, like plot, for example, and start by asking ourselves what the characters in the story actually do, because a major plot point doesn't happen by accident, right? Um, and move from plot towards style as we do our evaluations of the meaning of the work, if we mm-hmm. start from action and move towards execution, then maybe by the time we've gotten down to those tiny details, 
we'll we'll have a better sense already. We'll already be in the ballpark of what the author was trying to talk about. Instead of picking up a work like I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with if they've been to any kind of a college class and immediately diving so deeply into the details of the execution of the prose style that they completely miss the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Oh man, Ian should get a check too. Look at him. That's why the plot chart is important. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. You're just trying to pad the grocery budget, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually very, very Aristotelian in its approach to this subject, because Aristotle says that the very first and most important thing in imaginative literature, he said tragedy, was the plot, that the plot was the thing. And I think that's why, that it's in the action itself that the broad lines of the story become clear, the major intentions of the author become clear in the plot. And then his syntax that he chooses, that he puts in the mouth of his characters and so on and so forth in his descriptions should follow. So that's what I mean by reading contextually. I don't just mean looking at the words around the individual word, although that's certainly important when you're talking about poetry. But if you're talking about a novel, considering the broader story itself before you get into the weeds and looking and look at syntax and little details, I think is really important. I got to throw something in here. Um, We're trying to be as open-minded as we can and allow for as many different shades of meaning as we can in this conversation and in our answer to this question. But I just have to throw out the unspoken assumption that we are all driving at, which is here are different techniques for understanding what the author meant to say. Mm -hmm. We haven't strayed one tiny little millimeter off of that basic presupposition, have we? No, I don't think any of us have. So... But doesn't that put us on? What would you say, Emily? Because we're all the same family. Because we've had this argument before. It would be absurd, wouldn't it, to say that there's no such thing as misunderstanding the author? Well, of course, we can misunderstand one. I mean, we misunderstand one another all the time in conversations, just as Megan said. But the implication that of the of admitting the possibility of misunderstanding the author is that the book means what he said it meant. Of course. So then what we are talking about, and when we're talking about the role of the reader in in participating in this emergence of meaning of the story, participating in the um, in the, the question what it means to me, is something that is that that happens after the story itself, right? The con- am I going too far here? The conversation between reader and author in which the reader contributes his own reactions to the images of a story, his reactions to the style and execution and syntax of the author. Those are, those are all happening in the context of the conversation that takes place post story. Yes. Yeah. You can't mistake a reaction for the, for the art itself. And and I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't allow that that's any less significant than the art itself. In fact, any author no. who goes to goes to write a novel with with good intentions, uh, uh, wholeheartedly hopes to have that conversation. That's in, in a sense the point of the well, novel to begin he's with. He's directing right? his comments to arouse our our pity, our pathos. Right. Is what Aristotle would have said. Right. right. And so, goals. and so confusing those two things is the problem. It's not that it's not that we're trying to say one of them's not legitimate, right? No, not at all. It's just that one comes before the other. Yeah. I mean, we have to listen before we speak. Otherwise, we, we get our rhetoric before our grammar, mm-hmm. to use a classical term. The first job of the reader is to sit on his hands, shut his mouth, and listen, to read carefully, mm. to understand the author. It's, it's just 
simply respectful. So what about this thing that Emily said a minute ago about words containing worlds? Well, that's why it's tricky. Well, I was thinking it's tricky because this has me thinking that like we have the logos, right? Which is Christ and that's the word and that's what the world is made of is words. But on the other hand, I think about like the story of the Tower of Babel where everyone spoke the same language, but God separated us into disparate languages so that we do have trouble communicating. There is like a brokenness to language. And so it's both Christ and perfect, but also for us, it's flawed and broken because of fallen nature. And so no wonder that we have difficulty communicating. That's part of, that's part of our lot in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that shade, that in between, that like not being able to communicate one-to-one, right? All the people who try to make these one-to-one languages where one word means one thing, they all fail. Mm -hmm. And so there's a gray area in between, which is both where the trouble happens, but I think it's also where the beauty happens and like the metaphors happen Mm -hmm. and that brokenness, which I think is a cool idea. But um, yes, absolutely. I wanted to know if if a story can mean something that the author didn't intend. Do you ever say something that you don't intend? Of course you do. You say things that you don't intend to say. That is, you speak poorly all the time. So do I. Wow. Okay, keep going. Keep going. It's it's one of the difficulties of communication. You do your best to say what you mean, and then somebody repeats to you what you've said, and you say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And then you speak again. Mm -hmm. You try again. Well, the author does his best to communicate what he means, but he doesn't necessarily get a second chance after publication to correct those things that he didn't intend. And so they're just left. There they are. And because language is ambiguous in so many ways, mm-hmm. right? Um, in a beautiful way, as well as a, a difficult way, mm-hmm. um, there are sometimes things that creep into uh, an, a reader's understanding that weren't necessarily uh, suggested intentionally by the author. Mm-hmm. And th- how are we going to know which things were intentional and which things weren't? I mean, what this actually suggests is that reading is scholarship, mm-hmm. that it requires a lot of work to hew as closely as possible to the course that the author has set. Basically, a reader's a detective. Yeah. It requires compassion, too, like, and empathy, because we all come from particular circumstances and particular walks of life. And so when we use certain words, they there's a story behind them, right? We, we use them because of our experience. So to make this personal, in our case, we use the word analysis and people who um, have a certain baggage attached to that word could dismiss us out of hand, thinking that we mean a certain thing by it, which we don't mean. But unless they are willing to listen, unless they're willing to you know, stop and hear what we have to say about it and learn what we mean by that word because of our own particular experience and walk of life, then they're going to miss out on what we actually mean. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, that's the same way with reading. We have to understand where they're coming from and, yeah. and step in their shoes for a second to understand why they use the words they did. Yeah, in a debate, we call that just defining our terms. Right. Right. We have to define our terms yeah. so that we're all on the same page. Um, that's important. Absolutely. Uh, wow. That is... Um... I'm so Missy. I have I have had this conversation with you off and on for 27 years, and I wasn't prepared for that response. I thought that I think that was great. What that that is important to def- no 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 that can an author mean something? Can a, an author's book mean something that he didn't intend? Yeah, you can misspeak. Absolutely, everybody misspeaks. He's just done it on paper, and he's gone to print. So would we? So then would we say then that um, 
in that case, theoretically speaking, the author has miscommunicated. Yeah. Or we've misunderstood. He's he's and written a, poorly. And again, we acknowledge when we say that that there is a meaning that he did intend that is not changeable. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. The author is the arbiter of meaning. Uh, Unlike Jacques Derrida and his ilk, in particular, I'm thinking of Roland Barthes, who wrote this piece called The Death of the Author. He suggests that the author is completely besides the point. Basically, we needed to eliminate the author, that is, kill the author, in order to bring his text into the new generation of criticism. Mm. Actually, he wanted to kill the critics too. Basically, what he wanted to do is <laughs> every every book, every every piece of art, every work of literature meant only what the reader brought to the text, that the words were um, subjective. Opportunities for opportunities. the reader to do his thing. Yeah, that reading is creativity. Not writing is creativity. Reading is creativity. Ah. And that if we get that author out of the way, right, this, this top-down mentality that the author is somehow the arbiter of the meaning of his text, who does he think he is anyway? Let's kill him. Because if we kill him, then that text can be ours and we can be creative and we're liberated. The text is liberated. We're liberated. Long live the people. The reader. The reader. The reader is God, if there's a God at all. And that's very consistent with postmodern ideas, right? They're atheistic at their base. Every man is his own God. Every man makes his own meaning. And this is just being applied then to how we read books. Except that's not a very Christian understanding of the world. I mean, like Emily said, Jesus is the Logos. That means that words have meaning. And when you look at the history of the world, the whole world was created with words. God spoke the world into existence and in that way connected meaning with language forever. This really gets at the, the question I wanted to throw up next, which is why all the hubbub about this? I mean, why is it important? What is riding on the outcome of this conversation? Oh, I think meaning itself is riding on this particular conversation. This doesn't just influence how we think about the novels that we read, how we talk about them together, but this influences how we read something like the scriptures. This influences whether or not there's meaning in this world at all. Is there objective meaning in this world? Well, um, Ian, Emily, Megan, would you agree with that? Is it, are the stakes as high as mom is just describing? I, I think that they absolutely are. But the first thing that came to my mind wasn't quite, um, quite as dramatic. Mostly my first thought was if, this, if, what we, if what we believe about words isn't true, then you can never actually communicate with another person besides yourself. Mm-hmm. That's right. You only ever meet yourself no matter what you read. And that sounds really lonely to me. Mm. It sounds really isolating. So I do think this conversation is of integral importance if you're ever going to meet another human being, you know? Absolutely. Mm. Ian, would you agree that the stakes are this high and why? Oh, absolutely. For the same reasons everyone else is saying. I mean, I've had, uh, <laughs> I've had some conversations that were really fun with people who thought, that the whole project of talking with one another was to come up with a newer and better way to interpret what the other guy just said and do it as many times as possible until the other guy wants to kill you pretty much. (laughs) And uh, can't say I didn't really enjoy those conversations, but I'm really glad at the end of the day that there is a point at which we all can communicate with one another. Yeah. Yeah. 
But uh, taking it from a slightly different direction, Emily, you and I were, were talking about a, uh, some feedback we got recently where someone said, why can't, why do we have to have this conversation about meaning anyway? In fact, why does reading a book have to be freighted with such a burden of philosophy? Can't we just read them? Can't we just read the book? Can it just be a story? I mean, that sort of illustrates why the stakes are so high, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I wish that we didn't, I don't think that it has to be a burden. I don't, but I mean, how far are you going to take that? If the story doesn't mean anything, then what is a, is a book just pages? Is it just a physical object? I mean, in order for a, a story to come through, there has to be some level of meaning, right? We have to be able to communicate something through words. Otherwise we won't be able to tell stories. And I can, there is such a thing as an author who's just writing a story for fun, but those usually aren't the ones that stick with us. <laughs> right. We're not reading those a so, hundred years I mean, later, are we? No, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that it has to be, be such pressure and you don't have to be thinking about Derrida for goodness sake, every time you approach a work of literature. But I do think it all kind of boils down to humility that mm. you have to, when you grab a book in your hands, you're submitting yourself to whatever the author had for you. Mm-hmm. And um, usually it, they did want to communicate and have us think about certain ideas and to ignore that is to ignore another person. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or at least to ignore his subject matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the book contains a subject, right? Yeah. It tells a story and not another story, a particular story. And we can go as deeply into that story as we want to. We can certainly read it and go no further than, yeah, I liked it and right. move on. But it's like, you know, when you go to a museum, you can walk through the, the, the different pieces of artwork and you don't have to stop and look long at any one piece. But mm-hmm. the really fine works of art kind of compel us to do so. They invite. They invite contemplation. Yeah. And as we look at the art as a whole, and we notice details within the, the frame, um, the art begins to take on more meaning. Our experience with the artwork is more, um, more meaningful. Mm-hmm. It's not that the art changes. It's mm-hmm. that we are changed by the art. And sometimes mm-hmm. in my own experience... Um, when I've done this in in art galleries, after stopping and and spending some time in in front of particular pieces, my appreciation of that work of art deepens, and mm-hmm. I understand it better than I did upon uh, a first glance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes well, I even think, you know, I didn't really like that work when I looked at it at first. It didn't please me just right off the bat. But when I look at it and I see the way that the lines come together and I notice things in, um, in the composition as a whole and coloring and light and, and shading and all the details of the art itself, as I begin to understand what the author was doing there in the art, I sometimes walk away thinking I was wrong about that work yeah, of art. I yeah. actually do like that work of art for all of these reasons that I didn't know before when all I'd done is glance at it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of literature. Literature is an art form as well. And we don't have to spend a lot of time gazing at a work of literature. We can enjoy it and move on. But I think that the longer we look at really worthy literature, um, the more we are affected by it, the better we understand it and our appreciation grows. Well, and that's where the benefit of the abundance of words comes in. The fact that these these works of art are crafted with words means that there's more and more and more that we can glean from it every time we come back to it, if it's been well done. Mm-hmm. I love how comfortable we are affirming what Emily just said and what Missy just said. Because in the in a world where 
the intention of the author and the objective meaning of words exists, there seems like there's all kinds of room for the uh, multifaceted nature of language and the, as you were saying, Missy, the multifaceted nature of the human psyche to communicate at different levels and in different uh, ways and directions. That seems like bounded within a world of objective truth and authorial intention. There's all kinds of room for that stuff. Yeah. There's all kinds of room for, for miscommunications Mm -hmm. and for good communication. Mm. Because sometimes you'll study that ambiguous language and you'll find that it was absolutely intended. Yeah. And that the author meant more than you knew, not less than you knew. Yeah. I don't know. To answer that mom that you were talking about who said, why do we have to, why do we have to make it such a heavy deal, this reading thing? We don't necessarily, with every work, not every work demands that kind of contemplation or invites it or supports it even. Mm -hmm. But um, in the same way that when we were children, we didn't necessarily consider the other children that we were playing with very deeply. They were just playmates. Right. We hung out with them and it was fun. Features of the landscape. Features of the landscape of our little world. Um, And the books that we encountered were play toys. Yeah. You know, they were fun. They were entertaining. Reading was entertainment. And there was nothing wrong with that. But, you know, when you grow older and you mature, you begin to understand that the people that populate your world are actually people like you Mm. and that they're deep. There's a lot going on behind the face and that they're worthy, worthy of getting to know, mm-hmm. worthy, worthy of better understanding, figuring out what, what they're thinking about and why they think those things and why they do the things that they do. And in the same way, because books are the product of minds like that, yes. those books aren't just play mm-hmm. things. You know, It's not that we can't read them and say, oh, that was entertaining. Books can be very entertaining. But usually the classics... The worthy books invite so much deeper understanding than that, that that flippant Mm. reading, Mm -hmm. and I use that word intentionally, that careless reading is a little disrespectful of the artist that produced it. Depending on the book. Depending on the book. I mean, some artists are are writing only for entertainment's sake. They're not writing to, to posit some deep human question, right? But some are. Yeah. And so you have to read the way that the author invites you to read and to read something that is deeply philosophical flippantly is sort of rude. (laughs) I think you're right. But you don't necessarily have to strive to, you're not going to be able to take it all in at one go. There's too much, but maybe it's more of, of being open, of opening your ears and sitting before the author, you know, like being open to that at least. Right. Yeah, it's like reading the yeah. room, right? Yeah. I mean, if you were to walk into a room, one of the first things that you learn to do as a child or that you teach your children to do is read the room. What's going on? Who's in it? And what's the conversation that's happening there? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you walk into a room and there's a party going on and we're all just having <laughs> fun together and everybody's talking at once and isn't it fun? And it's light. And other times you walk into a room and there's a philosophy teacher up front holding forth on some very significant facts. And now is not the time for jokes. And now is not the time for you to just kind of butt in and have a little party. You know what I mean? You got to read the room. And that's true when you pick up a book. You got to figure out what kind of a book am I looking at? And what is it asking of me? Because every book asks something of you. And let me just say this. To pick up a book that was intended to be entertainment and try to read it like a work of deep philosophy is also a misuse. Right. Mm-hmm. 
We got to read the room. Mm. That, I think, is a bone mow worthy of stopping on. We got to read the room. We got to read the room. Is that a fair enough answer to the question we began with? I say yes. As titular head of the Center for Lit crew, I'm calling it <laughs> on that on that note. And I want to thank you all. For- titular. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, that word. word I think I did. <laughs> Titular because of titillating and I, all of that. Oh my goodness, we just went there too. <laughs> oh, <stop>. Okay, <laughs> done. <laughs> so I want to thank you all, uh, Center for Lit Crew, for joining us for this edition of Bibliophiles. Thanks also to you, listeners, uh, scattered far and wide around the diaspora. If you'd like to rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, we would sure appreciate that. We also invite you to swing by the website of an evening, www.centerforlit.com and see the resources that we have there for readers of all stripes. Thanks for joining us for Bibliophiles, my friends. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>